Hey everyone, welcome to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. Lou Rosenfeld here with Trisha Wong. Hi, Trisha. Hi, Lou. Great to have you. We're doing something really weird. This is very atypical for a Rosenfeld Review podcast. First of all, we're sitting in the same room, and I think I've only done that one other time. I think the first podcast I ever did. And so um, I was all boggled by the technology. And thank you, Trisha, for helping me figure out how to actually record this. Uh, and the other thing that we're doing differently, two other things. Uh, one is we are drinking wine. At least I'm drinking wine. Salud. And uh, uh, because the other thing, which is uh, Trisha is getting me to talk about this deep, dark, painful story from my past, from something like 22 years ago, uh, when I started off in consulting. And uh, I, I was telling her the story recently of working for Borders, Borders Books and Music. You might remember that name. They are no longer extant, but Borders was a very interesting company that was essentially uh, the folks that founded the, the first uh, book superstores. They were sort of the template for Barnes & Noble. And uh, we're a wonderful company. Did some work for them, want to tell you about it. Uh, and Trisha uh, and I are gonna talk about it and she's gonna get me going uh, with some questions in the wine. But I have a feeling it's, it's gonna be talking a lot about painful early experiences in, in the field. Because uh, I think we all have them, you know, we just don't always talk about it publicly. And right. I think it's important that we share these stories for these emerging designers uh, to really understand that this kind of stuff happens actually all the time. But, you know, I wish at the time, I mean, this came up because I was telling you about my Nokia story. I had a similar one um, and I just wish I could have talked to someone like you at the time or if there was like a podcast I could have listened to or an article to read about just like what happens when you're working at a large company and you're coming up with these recommendations or insights and actions that you know is getting them in the right direction but you just see that you're hitting a wall and they're not going anywhere and then you can see their future so clearly you can do everything possible as this like optimistic naive you know consultant designer whatever your title is and you just don't see it going anywhere. Uh, and I think there's a lot we can learn from this. And to know that like it, you're not the only one you so, know, out there. So if you're experiencing this, whoever's listening. And it's interesting because it's Borders and Nokia. And where are they now, right? Gone. Uh, and, and we have like Jeremiah and Cassandra in the room here uh, uh, saying, uh, I told you so, but uh, we're going to do, you know, we won't do I told you so, but we're, we're certainly going to do a little bit about uh, the pain and agony of, of seeing things um, uh, before they unraveled. Uh, well, I mean, you know, let's go back to your Nokia story. Uh, what, what, what were you brought in by Nokia to do? And well, when? I was brought in to do, to work in their R&D department right before the iPhone had come out. And in my case, they were just like, you're far from the product. And, you know, so your job is to give you a protected space to go do this research. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. And I came back with insights that actually directly affected their product. And uh, I essentially told them that the smartphone would become a thing and that Chinese, the whole entire market in China and India and everyone else would be buying smartphones. And the iPhone had just come out. So they thought I was crazy. And then they're like, no one has told us this. We've had ethnographers working here, unnamed names. And they also said nothing, we don't see any of these insights in our quantitative data sets. So you're crazy. And when you told me your story, I was just like, this is really fascinating because it's a total parallel 
And this needs to be heard, you know, mm-hmm. because I think so many people experience this. So it's so interesting about you know being told you're crazy because a other people like you have not had the same conclusion, yeah. and b the quant data does not. It's like wait a minute, hold on. The well, quant data yeah. is all about what has been. It's not about what will be. Yeah, and they were just like we have people who are much more famous than you because I was junior in my career. How old were you at started. the time? Oh, I was like twenty like probably 29 or something maybe even 27 at the time and I was still in the middle of my PhD but they were just like we've had much more we have super senior famous ethnographers working for us who haven't told us this what did those people miss I have no idea but we're not here to talk about that we're here to talk about what the fuck did borders miss all right (laughs) like what happened Lou like what compelled uh, you to finally just break out this story from the addict of your memories when we were having beer last yeah, week. Yeah, because you're an ethnographer and you're really good at getting me talking, so that's what it you're, was. You're, you know, you, I only needed to feed you one beer. It's easy. I'm <laughs> you easy. easy. But, well, all right, so let's go back. Uh, it's, it's Ann Arbor, Michigan, the, head, or the home of, of Borders, and it's 1995, and, and I'm just getting started in my career. I'm 30 years old. And um, what was the world like in 1995? Like, what was the internet and computer experience like? I'm just just to give us a setting. Like, we, we had just stopped us. talking about BOD. What? <laughs> like the speeds of our connections. We used to talk about in BOD, which what's like, BOD? Yeah, B A U D. Look it up. That's all I'll say. Uh, it was really slow, but. It, to, to, to you know the, the the environment back then was like we were just a few years into the idea that um, not only could you sell things via the internet but that that was okay because there was a point not that long earlier like 1990 91 where there was like a lot of debate as to whether the internet should be allowed to be an environment for commerce Okay. Was well, that a government discussion, or just among people? Well, it partly users? because it was a the the ethos of the people who built the internet was first of all they were funded by the government, and it was like uh-huh. you know it was like the Stuart Brand, Howard Rheingold, you know. Information needs to be free. It's all about yeah. Uh, and, you know, I always say to that, well, maybe I think what information really wants, if you ask it, is it wants to be used, and oh. um, you gotta oh. snap. Ah. But nah, um, you should have coined it. You could I still sh- coin uh, that. TM. TM. Uh, so, okay. Uh, you know, so we were like just, we all right. There, there, people were starting to do commerce by then. And I was, um, uh, uh, with Peter Morville, I was running Argus, which was an information architecture consulting firm. Uh, and uh, we were working at the time. You couldn't just make a living doing IA. So we were working uh, as part of a consortium with about uh, three other companies that did things like uh, project management and graphic design and, and, uh, and development. So we had a lot of the bases covered that we could deliver a website. And we were doing quite a few websites for a lot, a lot of large organizations in, in Michigan at the time. Uh, and um, we brought in Borders, which was the hometown company. You know, Borders was like, I remember when there was one Borders the first store was in Ann Arbor, and it was amazing. And like when I was in library school, the only reason you would ever drop out of library school is if someone from Borders said, "I'll give you a full time job. We love wow. books. You love books. Come join us." Wow. What? Tell. Give us a feeling of what did it feel like to walk into a Borders? Oh in my God! It was like you're in this enormous place that uh, you know, like the biggest bookstore you've ever been in. 
but it's good. Like the people who work there really know their shit. They really love books. And the way it's been designed... Really? I don't even remember. That's amazing. 95. I was just yeah. always... I remember as a 15-year-old, that's the place I went after I got high. And I would, like, listen to all the CDs. Yeah, you could walk up and, and you'd put the headphones on. And I never talked to the people who worked there. They were actually smart and librarians. They were, they were trying to talk to you, but you were high. So um, you didn't notice. But, yeah, no, no, they were really great. They, were, they hired... They made a point of hiring people who knew their shit... Uh, who are subject matter experts. Wow. And they also designed the store in a way that was like, I remember uh, Mr. Gable, who was one of the three founders of Borders with the Borders Brothers, he told me, ah, he's kind of a crabby guy. Ah, you know, we don't, we're not going to have any of those Garfield calendars and all that crap. We're going to have really great stuff. And it's, you know, the, you know like so he, he had kind of figured out how to do merchandising in the superstore. He was the guy who invented it, basically. And he would, he, when we were working with him, he showed us how they designed a Borders store. How? And he would show us things like, here's the book table. It has three tiers of books. And we put the bestsellers in the furthest tier, so you encounter the more esoteric things in the first row that's closest to you. And he would show us about how the, he um, had different sections of books, different subject areas connect to each other very intentionally. Mm. There's a whole bunch of merchandising nuggets that we were like, oh my God, so we can do this on the web. So he didn't program it for you to, the books that you would buy, he would want you to walk Put that in the more in the back. The yeah, third exactly. Table. And the first and second table were to introduce tiers that of tiers, the one table. Yeah, right. That you wouldn't necessarily these tiers. Okay, yeah. that you wouldn't necessarily buy. Well, yeah. He what he wanted and what Borders was about was was good information, interesting mm. information, not commercial and popular necessarily. You could get some of that there, but what they wanted you to do was was to be exposed to the bounty of the world and, and to new information when you exactly. look at it. so that's fascinating that's what they were about now 1995 they were taking that formula and and trying to replicate it uh, all around the United States and, and eventually overseas and they were opening a new superstore every three days yeah. at, at a cost of something like one to two million dollars it, it, it changed my life as a teenager I there was I remember there was Starbucks there was Noah's Bagel and there was Borders and we like get high in the parking lot then we have go, a bagel you know have a bagel do our drinking and bring more of the alcohol into Borders and then it was just like the most beautiful playground and then we had Target across the street it was like for the suburban kid and I think for many people in my generation, it was just one of those amazing places. Because I generally, I love the books at Borders. They, and I never knew that there was like this whole oh. merchandising history. Totally. And I mean, they invented so much stuff. They took like the small bookstore's charm and, and like thoughtfulness in terms of what they were wow. selling and made it into a formula that could then be... Wow brought all over the country and in fact they they had they also one of the benefits of or one of their their secret sauces was that one of the borders brothers invented essentially an early uh, ai-ish system for customizing inventory to um each community so like you know in in uh um bloomfield hills michigan the inventory was going to be a little different than it was going to be in berkeley california um that said uh, it's 1995, and um, I'm running a project now where we get hired by Borders to do two things. 
build their first website and build the first web-based bookstore. Wow. And, and you already were done being a librarian. Oh yeah, no, I then, was. Right? I so was, this is great. This but is like I was a like, extension. I'm a hometown boy. I, I love books. I've written books, and uh, I'm gonna help you guys, and we're gonna figure this out. And and we've got all these great people working together to to do this work, and we can do it. We've done it for other companies, so um, we were excited. And Borders also, you got to think about it this way: is they had these whole supply chain thing down. So whether they were opening up a physical bricks and mortar bookstore, or you know, our thinking a virtual bookstore, they should be able to handle the hard part, which mm -hmm. is distribution and fulfillment. They already had that down pat. Okay, so what happened? Get, let's let's get to it. So we built their website, and it was a kind of a horrible experience at that point because um, uh, the way uh, the the boarders set up the relationship with us was it was run by two people. One was a, was a VP from Borders Books. It was actually quite great to work with, a marketing VP. And the other person was a, a VP from the holding company who controlled the budget. So let's put the project in one person's hands, the budget in another person's hands. And I remember the guy who controlled the budget, I had to meet with him as well as the, the, the one who actually was running the project. And uh, he would say, I want you to tell me what the other VP is doing. Keep an eye on her. It was like, oh, wait a minute. So I'm a, essentially a client manager, a project manager, an information architect, and a spy. Wonderful. That really makes sense. And that's- You're so uh, set up to do a great job. Oh yeah. We managed to launch a website for them. A basic, you know, this is what Borders is, what we're about. and. And we did that, and we did another thing for them, which is namely create a very detailed document specking out what the first virtual bookstore would be on the web. This is pre-Amazon. So you specked out the first virtual bookstore That's for right. a, com a commercial book company. Yeah, Borders, who actually you would think would want to that do this. To be in your bio. As a librarian, that's actually an important thing, a sentence that could be It would have been. It could have been. Well, and, specking uh, out, that's already a big deal. Uh, I know, but you know what? It's all, uh, listen, I mean, everything I say is, is it would have been, could have been, it's ideas, it's, it's bits and bytes, but there's nothing real there because what happened was um, they really couldn't figure out how to fit this weird animal of the web into how they were managing themselves, nor did they appreciate it. And uh, they, the CEO realized that these two VPs that he had set up to battle with each other were battling. And instead, he said, you know what? This, is, this isn't really working. I'll find somebody else to run it. And he had another VP. It was a guy that um, nobody really liked there. And he couldn't really figure out what to do with this VP. So he said, you know what I'll do? I'll give him the website. So I remember my first meeting with this fellow uh, after he took over the project. It went like this. We sat down. And he said to me, Lou? With consultants, I either hate them or I love them. And you, I hate. Mm. Within about two weeks, we resigned from the project. Wow. Was this, did he say this over drinks? Nope. Oh, this is just like, think, he wanted to establish his primordial, uh, 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 maybe that's not the right word, but he wanted to show he was boss. He wanted me to be submissive, and I had to work, he wanted me to work my ass off 
to show or to earn his love. And you know what? Life's too short. Mm. Life's way too short for that crap. So we quit. Whoa. Now, if you want to kind of quickly fast forward the, the history there, what happened next with Borders is uh, this fellow hired IBM. Because IBM was, you know, of course, you're going to have a website built. You hire IBM in 1995. Didn't go well. IBM never launched the site. Now, maybe IBM was trying to do the right thing, and Borders wasn't a good client. Yeah. Uh, so that dragged out at a cost of, I think, millions of dollars. And uh, eventually, what happened was IBM got kicked out, and um, Borders became a tab at Amazon. Wow. And eventually, um, Borders finally launched their own store in the aughts. And what do you mean in the... The aughts, like the 2000s, like 2005 oh, or something like okay. that. I've and never heard of that It was too phrase. late. And I will tell you, um, uh, I went to hear a talk in about 1997, 98. The CEO of Borders was giving a talk in Ann Arbor, Bob DiPromaldo. And he gives his talk, and then during the Q&A, somebody gets up and says, Mr. DiRomaldo, I'm really kind of wondering about your company's future when it comes to the web. Your, your market capitalization is getting beat to hell. You're not on the web other than, you know, through Amazon. Uh, what's, what's the story there? What are you going to do? And the CEO's response was, ah, the internet, it's like CB radio. And I was just so shocked, so disgusted, because, look, CB radio was a fad for about two months in the summer of 1976. 1997-98, um, you know, if you didn't see that the Internet was going to be important and that commerce on the Internet was going to be important by then, what the fuck? Yeah. And clearly he doesn't understand spectrum policies that actually it's not about CB radio, but it's actually... Uh, these are all arguments around the importance of a spectrum, and spectrum space is very, very valuable. This is crazy. And yeah, I mean, Borders is gone. I, I know people, uh, people I'm friends with who hope to be lifers there, and they lost their jobs. And it was a great company for a while. And you know, there are companies and industries that go through amazing change in short amounts of time. They they are born, they live, and they die in the space of 10 or 20 years sometimes. But it didn't need to be the case with Borders. They could have been there first. They could have beat Amazon to the, to the punch, at least for books. And uh, they had all the, the, the building blocks in place. They just didn't have the vision to see it. Hmm. And, you know, so as a consultant, a couple things. This is the advice for all of you who are listening. If you're a consultant or whatever role you have in an industry that you care about, at some point you're going to get your heart broken. They're going to, you're going to have a client that stomps all over your heart, crushes it into little bits. What are you going to do? It's just, they Borders did that to me. Uh, I imagine you've had that experience with, with Nokia. And you're just never going to forget it. And mm -hmm. you're always going to be shaking your head about what could have been. And the other thing is, it, it's it, it you start seeing how quickly things live and die mm -hmm. and um, how how you the, a juggernaut that you cannot imagine not existing on this earth is gone in a matter of years or even months that's mind-boggling and I don't think the human 
brain is quite like caught up to the fact that things can change so quickly. I, I think that's probably the biggest problem we're facing right now is we cannot compute. We cannot absorb, we cannot understand how things are changing. Yeah, well, there's a lot of arrogance, you know, especially in enterprise companies is they are not freaking out enough, you know, because they think they're resting on their, their what they've done so far. And then I, we see this with, you know, tech companies all the time because they think that they're better than the non-tech companies because they're at the forefront of technology. But they're also, what they don't get is that it's successful companies aren't just built on the technology. It's built on also having uh, a really great understanding of their consumer and their customers, people, and giving them what they need, you know. I mean, the internet was around for so long before people actually found a use for it. And... Uh, it never was really originally conceived as a place where you could like order, you know, dog food or, you know, just, you know, anything that is outside of what was the creating these elite institutions. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be for intellectual conversations and, you I know, those days. where race wouldn't matter anymore. Gender wouldn't matter anymore. We would just be, you know, bodiless, you know, <laughs> avatars. And that was really the dream of the early Internet. Isn't that funny? Like how, you know, we had these dreams and... I never had this dream, by the way. I just want to be clear. Okay, but I mean, you know, I mean, like, they've happened, but in such weird ways. And the the, the dreams that we thought were good dreams actually ended up being bad dreams in some cases. You know, so we have all this access to information, and yet so much of the information is just horrible and hateful. And, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there were a lot of people saw it coming, and we were all, you know... Excited. I know I was at the time. You were? I was going to oh, ask yeah. you, were you in the camp of like the tech utopia of like this information will make our society better? I never I mean, felt like, it really? was going to be utopian, but I, I felt like, you know, the more information out there, the more informed people ultimately right. will be. It's a very Stuart Brand, like yeah. that, like information wants to be free and it'll make us more, you know, it's going to make us smarter, like the more information people have access to. But it's, it's like... What I think we're finding is like just the corrosiveness yeah. of information. I never really thought information could corrode, but I mean, there's a, I mean, like Goebbels would be just so psyched these days about like all the ways you can manipulate and corrode mm-hmm. people's minds. I mean, you know, just it's the propagandist stream. And uh, I, I mean, one of the things I really want to do and I want my company to do is to try to figure out ways to help people who are trying to heal the world. And um, I think things are so broken. Um, and, uh, you know, it's because technology just runs ahead so quickly and can be abused so easily. Uh, can we ever catch up? I don't know. I hope so. I think if we all had more realistic expectations and we work together, absolutely. But I think, like, for me, I never had this expectation that information would make, you know, people better. Because I grew up in a, in a very wealthy town where there was, I had best access to education in this town outside of Sacramento. And it was very upper class Caucasian. And I saw some horrific behavior. And I saw a lot as, as the only Asian person. I saw how, you know, black people are treated and Latinos. And I was just like, these are people who have access to amazing education. They have Ivy League parents and but I I they were very narrow-minded and so I never I think I never had I don't think I ever had that illusion but I do have the dreams and hopes that through by by working together uh with different people um you know that this work this it's hard work 
Uh, and it's, it's work that you're putting in, Lou, and, and making, you know, a lot of this stuff more transparent in the work that we do. And also, I think like a lot of people don't know about your other work that you're also going to post on Medium is that I think it's the work that we also do in our everyday lives. That's very invisible in our work. You know, I don't know if you guys all know, but Lou has, you know, been doing a lot of uh, education activism in his school. He was actually just telling me about this earlier about covering the story of how it's been very unequal access and treatment of kids. It's like blatant, you separate, know. Separate but equal. Separate equal and the, not equal. you know, and separate but not equal. And and now you've been able to get really great coverage of it by the New York Times, despite you know using design and making inf- like that. So I do believe that you know good use of design can help you know bring light but it's not just the design itself it's that you were just telling like you were going there and making conversation and creating relationships as parents explain to them oh this is the infographic i made and here's why this is how we use it you're putting it you know it was in the community organizing of like not putting it on the internet or your instagram but it was like you were making copies of this and plastering it on around your community you know so people will see it and and physically encounter it that has nothing to do with just like you know design purely it's that there is or information pure information it's Mm -hmm. like there's all this invisible human connection and explanation that has to happen and i think it connects you know back to your story it's like it's never just about the technology it's that it's all based on these invisible relationships the politics and egos that you really have to navigate and i think as like when you're starting your career you don't you don't see that you know and i i would say i was very naive you know in my work thinking that i could just be like here's the information nokia now make the right decision isn't it so obvious you're going to listen to me and it doesn't matter that i'm a junior you know ethnographer or whatever. And they're paying you. They hired you yeah. to do that. You were just doing what they asked you to yeah, do. Yeah, and it's like, I'm giving you this amazing information until your company is going to collapse. And you were doing the same thing, Lou, you know, like much earlier. And there's so many other stories like this out there. But I think the hard part we have to figure out is that it's that these human relationships and these communities we have to build that then pa- that's what powers information through. You know, that's what creates those filters. Um you know, it's funny. I, I, this is just so fun talking with you as always. But one of the things that you're helping me understand—I uh, don't know if this is going to make any sense because it's never really occurred to me before—but we are all focused on comfort. We all want to be comfortable. Comfort creates pockets of of uh, people living with people that they're comfortable with. Yes, speak more, Lou. I sense something very wise coming. Oh, now you put, now you just mess me up. Comfort and we're we're too focused on comfort, and you know, technology is supposed to deliver comfort, of course, and we have this expectation that lives, our lives, will be comfortable, and I think we got to move away from that. First of all, for most of human history, comfort was like, you know, like maybe uh, an afterthought for one percent of the population. But I think the problem is we we, we are trading. So many important things, justice and, and, and moral behavior uh, for cheap comfort. Well, I, I would actually throw that question back to you and say comfort. I don't think comfort's a bad thing to want, but I think it, you can insert the word comfort. I don't want to like get into you know nitpicking over words. It could be like we all want comfort. We all want access. We all want fancy things or we all want happiness. But it's the question for me is like for who though? Like, am I building comfort for myself only or for people who look like me? Or do I want comfort for other people too? And well, I think that's what you're working on in your work. Is but like, I think that's it. I mean, it's like, right? we want, we don't want happiness. We don't really know what happiness is because happiness is, is 
I can't really be happy if I'm the only one happy, right? Yeah, but... I mean, I can be comfortable and other people can't be comfortable, but that's the thing. I think we're, we don't think about what it means to truly be happy. I think we're more focused on how we can be comfortable. And being comfortable means being with people that aren't challenging, that are maybe like us, that maybe for, don't force us to think differently. But I think when I'm around people that are different and challenge me, I'm happier. I think it's a very different thing than, I may not be comfortable, but mm-hmm. I might be happy. Are you saying I make you uncomfortable? Oh, you make, make you me happy? very uncomfortable. Oh, this is so good. I succeed then. <laughs> that is always my goal in every social Yay. interaction, you know, to always make everyone uncomfortable. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, really, I mean, I think there's something there and I don't totally understand it yet, but uh, I, I'm thinking about doing things like working on the, the, the project I, that you mentioned about, like trying to deal with our schools and, the, and social justice in our schools here in New York City. And I find that the, the work itself forces me into uncomfortable places, mm. but I'm happier because I'm working on it. I feel like my life has more meaning and I feel hope for the future because I'm working on those things. That makes me happy, even though it doesn't make me comfortable. So, so let's bring it back to your work then. It's, what kind of advice would you give for you know, designers who are listening to this podcast about what you know the thing is like why is it so hard for people who are in power in organizations where they're bringing people like you in to do to bring to introduce the new to them but then when it brings them discomfort you know makes them uncomfortable why is it that they don't want to take the risks to go there like how how would you well because they want they want to be comfortable they're in positions of of privilege and power and they want to maintain that and that's a comfortable thing. And the fact of the matter is they're not going to maintain that typically because the world changes and technology is going to bite them in the ass at some point and change their lives and their careers. So if you are doing your job as a designer, as a researcher, mm-hmm. as someone who's trying to make organ- help organizations change, i got to say you've got to be, com- be able mm-hmm. to be uncomfortable and speak truth ah. and, and, and say... Look, I'm not, I, I, I mean, basically, I think we're too nice. Stop being nice. Start being direct, honest, truthful, even if it makes you and the people in the room uncomfortable because you're not doing anybody any good. Yeah. Yourself or them, if you're trying to make them comfortable, they will be happy in the long run. So, but so not here, comfortable. This makes me think of actually something that MIT just put on as a conference called Defiance. And it's, I think it's just so amazing. I would urge everyone to go Google Defiance at MIT right now. Say it again. Defiance. Defiance. How do you spell it? Like the, like the, actual, the actual word, Defiance? Yeah, Defiance. Okay. And uh, they, it's, a, it's a conference specifically about exploring is that how does, you know, in celebrating scientists, at what point do you publish your, or, you know, push out your work even when it goes against the law? And uh, it was a, a conference about that specifically. And it's really amazing because oftentimes it really breaks the paradigm that one, the one camp where people say, well, science is just objective and you don't have to deal with politics. But that's totally false because, you know, science doesn't exist in a vacuum. And they celebrate, uh, they had these, not, you know, they celebrate, they gave out awards for people who actually uh, got great scientific work out, even though it broke the law. And they celebrated this one professor who, you know, they collaborated, who really 
broke the news on what was happening in Flint with the water poisoning. And he worked with another doctor locally who was yeah, seeing the these issues. Pediatrician. But the professor published a paper without peer review because that professor, I forget it was a she or he, but you know, that person said, it's more important that this paper saves lives than for me to do Wait. peer review. Right. Right. And I find that oftentimes designers, you know, or people in my field of, uh, you know, it could be designers or UX people or ethnographers, whatever you want to call them, design researchers, our field, is that oftentimes we think we live in a political space. And what I think what you're saying, and especially in our times right now, is that we may see our work as very apolitical, but I always see our, my work as a form of social justice, is I'm going in and specifically going giving voice to people who don't have voices. And yes, it's in a consumer setting, but this is where, this is one way of being recognized, is getting your needs met. And I think that we often say that design, if you just present good design and, and form, then you know it just speaks for itself. But really what you're saying is that, you know, that's not how it works and that you're going to be in positions where you're going to have to speak, you know, what you see, what you think is a reality that needs to be heard. I don't want to use the word truth because I don't even think there is such thing as single truth, but there is a reality that you think more needs to be shared and acknowledged and it may go against the grain. It's going to make people uncomfortable, but it's good. It's the, the thing that must be done because it benefits the greater good. Right. right. I mean, you know, we, we try to please. We're always trying to please, right? Please our clients, please our team leaders, please whoever the hell we're trying to please. Yeah. And we got to get past that because, you know, I mean, the economics may kind of push us in that direction and other factors might, but in the long run, it's simply not, it, it, they're more important things. A social good, uh, our, our own ability to look back on our careers and, and feel like we had integrity yeah. and made a difference. Well, so you, you had, let's just say, I mean, I don't want to make any assumptions, but you said you quit the job. Like, that was a really big deal. But there there's a certain kind of privilege that comes with the ability oh, yeah. to even say you can quit. I don't, this is not, you know, I don't, we don't need to get into this, this situation. But like, what advice do you have to, could give to people who actually can't just quit, even though they really want to? Like, how do you manage that? How do you live that in a way like where they Gosh. just don't, where it's just not as so, easy to make that decision? That's a really great question because, like, in, like in, in a sense, I have had the privilege uh, and maybe more importantly, the naivete to not really think about the implications. Mm. And I just went ahead and quit. It's like you know, screw this. I know. I just uh, so crazy. I, I just think you know, life is too short, and I'm going to do other things, and I'm I'm not happy about it, but I'm going to quit, right. and and hopefully it'll turn out. I didn't have kids to feed. I didn't have any major obligations at that point in my life. Um, but a lot of people do. And I think my advice would be, um, is if you cannot quit, you need to go on record somehow as, as uh. how, in terms of how you feel, because whether that's something you share with your, your partner, uh, your life partner, your, uh, your teammates, you have to express how you feel, not because you want to say at some point down the road, I told you so, but because you don't want to be captured. You want to, you, your integrity has to live somewhere, and it lives when you express your feelings. If you have to move on from those feelings and you have to go ahead and, and bite the bullet and do the work that they want you to do or, 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 or bite your lip and not express the ideas to the client or whomever, uh, so be it, but somewhere you have that integrity that you have has to have a chance to, to take root and it, it may not 
flourish and flower in the job you're in at the moment, but it'll at least maybe in the next job be something you can build on. You yeah. have to give it some room. I totally love that advice that you just gave. And I would I would add to that because in my situation, I would say my privilege is being an Asian female and that comes with a you know, a set of I would say disprivileges, whatever there's a word for it, but it also comes with a set of privileges that I had access to, you know, an education that a lot of my white counterparts had access to because my family moved out. Did not have access to? I did. Eventually I did. We moved we became middle class. Uh, over overnight when I was in junior high and I would say that's when I learned I had I had access to a middle upper class education and um, but I'm also perceived in a certain way but the point is is that I had I see my privilege too and but what I did in my work my advice would be is that um, on top of just um, giving you know finding some way for your te- integrity somewhere for your integrity to live which I love that you said that is that you know my work I tried to share the work and it was suppressed and I did it in many different formats I made I wrote it in email that didn't work I tried to make it in a presentation or a PowerPoint I tried to send it to people that didn't work but I think what's what's more important is to think long term is that for me um, my my way of dealing with this I knew I had to leave because I knew not only could I not live with myself, right? Mm-hmm. Because that might that would not be integral to what I witnessed. But also I knew that it would look pretty because I was so fucking confident in my prediction that Nokia would collapse and that uh, Chinese uh, the the country of China, especially migrants, would move over to smartphone. I was so confident. I was like, I will look like shit years a few years later when the company collapses and I continue to stay and I did nothing. And right. so even though I took a risk financially and short I, term, yeah, though. short term, but it was, it That's was really, hard. But I mean, I think what you did was really important. You said, let me look back on this. What will it look like? How will I feel about myself? Yeah. My ideas, how, how I, I handle the situation. And I think when you are confronted with options that um, none of which are particularly Good. I mean, they're they're both painful. Whether you 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 bite the bullet or and, and stick around or you you out the problem, yeah. and, and that, they're both painful options. But if you look at it through the frame of which one will I regret the least? Yeah, that's what you did. Well, and it was also a financial payoff. Like, let's just be truthful about like the finances involved. And it was like I knew that if I really could not find a job that I could ask my mother for help. Like I would, and I knew that I could ride mm-hmm. through the wave, but mm-hmm. and I knew it would be a better financial payoff in the future because I think it would hurt me, hurt my job and my career if I stayed at a company that I said, you know, where I told them that it would collapse and then I ended up staying. And it's like, well, well what the like, hell were you yeah. doing there, you know? Exactly. So I knew that I would even make more, um, if we're only talking about money, you know, but that those things factor in. So I think that's really great advice that you're giving is that give your, give your ideas a place for them to live so that you can live, give your integrity a place to live and on top of it i think is really i you know relying on help if you can get it and then if not but just make sure you have some record of it and think about the long term right i think that's the conclusion i I want a long term payoff you know we're talking about younger this is probably a great place to end the podcast and this is a a particularly long one because i'm having such a good time talking with you 
But I do want to extend it a little bit to giving advice, not just for junior mm. people oh. looking forward, but for oh. people who've been around the block. Oh, let's. let's so here's one more thing. I'll then I could use this. this advice right now. Yeah. Well, so I did consulting for the Veterans Administration in the Bush era. Wow. And it was not a pretty thing, because uh, at that time uh, it, it was kind of like a real patronage, patronage role for the. Um, uh, to people running the, the, the VA at the time were just basically unqualified and uh, amoral Bush appointees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's amazing that we now look back longingly on, on, on the days of, of W, but uh, the, the truth of the matter wasn't so good back then. Um, and I was brought in to um, look at their information architecture and try to figure out how to make it better. In other words, how to make their information more findable. And in a nutshell, I was hitting such resistance and I, I just was pulling my hair out of my head. And I asked the, the guy I was working with, who was a great guy, I said, look, I don't, I don't know what to do here. I can't, nobody listens, nobody, I, this, this is not going anywhere. And he said, you know what, it's terrible. What, this is what it comes down to. The senior leadership at the VA does not want to make its information findable because that means veterans are gonna figure out what their benefits are and in turn, they're going to make claims and it's going to cost the VA money. And here it's like, you've got people who have risked their lives uh, on the battlefield and who are entitled to these benefits. And the organization that's supposed to provide those benefits is saying, eh, let's make it kind of hard for them to find. Not just kind of, just almost impossible, right? Uh-huh. To navigate the bureaucracy. And, and I was just unbelievably disgusted what did you do at the time i did nothing i did nothing and a few years later it was bothering me and i wrote a piece about it where on my blog when i had when i had a blog and i said when everyone had a blog (laughs) i said i cannot i i this has to come out i you know i I don't care what bridges i burn i don't i I don't care I, i should have said something back then and I wish I had. I'm going to say it now. This was a terrible thing. And I was, it was terrible that I didn't speak up. Mm. And all I can say as advice to those of you who have been in the field for a while is if you didn't speak up, there's still a chance. It could be a year ago. It could be five years ago. It could be 20 years ago. Do it. Especially if you Do have it. more, if you're a senior, you have more of a power and... You have the ability to gather clients. You have that expertise Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that history. And you know how to manage and deliver information in a way that can land right politically. At least you can try. You have the skills. I should have tried. And you just pretty much, you're saying you didn't even try. I didn't even Even with all your expertise later on. Yeah. I didn't try. I think I was, I'm trying to think about why I didn't try. Was I... Busy? That's a crappy excuse. Was I scared? I don't know if I'm scared of like you know losing future business with anyone. I don't think that was the issue. I just think I was mostly disgusted and disappointed, and I didn't want to have any more to do with the VA. What did, so? What did you do with the project? Actually, I'm just curious. I was done. I had nothing else to do. I, I gave. I mean, like the engagement wound down. I, I, I there wasn't anything I could do. And it was frustrating, and it's one of the reasons I'm not a consultant anymore. It's because I had so many projects like that where I felt like I came up with good ideas that didn't go anywhere. Mm. Uh, and um, life is short. 
But now you're in the business of making sure that people's ideas get out there, empowering all of us who are out there That's right. on the front lines. That's right. I'm, I'm so happier really doing this. Found an I'd, amazing I'd rather contribution. I'd help mean, brilliant people needed. like you get your ideas out. Uh, I'm, I've only got so many, and my, my ideas are kind of past ideas. I don't know that they have a lot of value moving forward, but what does have a lot of value is to work with people who want to make the world a better fucking place. And I'm okay with that hippie goal uh, yeah. because, you know what, someone's got to do it, and um, I'm, I'm happy to be doing this. And um, so I really thank you and people that I get to work with for having your ideas and I'm glad to try to help and um, hopefully together we can make it a little better. Well, you, you're you're returning back to your motto is that instead of information wants to be free, it's information wants to be used and you're making sure that information arrives in a way that can be used in a much more scalable way. So I think we're all much happier with you in this position and there's enough consultants, naive consultants like us. <laughs> Well, to, long, do, to do this work, we need we need you. So long live naivete. <laughs> long live naivete. It certainly got me this far. Um, we should probably wrap this up, but I no. I, we I, should drink more and, and just we, like keep talking and talking until oh. people get bored and fall asleep. Wow. Um, should we? What else do you want to talk about? <laughs> no, I need to go to my dance class. Okay, and I got to go to yoga. Yeah. Wow, we're God, so Brooklyn. We're so Brooklyn. But let's um, just sign off by saying, first of all, it, you know, Trisha, I've, I've got to know you a little bit in the last few months, and, and you gave such an amazing talk at Enterprise UX, and unfortunately we had some AV problems. I'm hoping we can recapture your talk soon and, and get it out there in a really good format, because I think what you have to say is very important. It's been really fun getting to know you over the last few months. I love your ideas. Thanks, Lou. And Even if I make you uncomfortable. Yes, you make me so uncomfortable, <laughs> you can tell. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, Trisha, your company is Constellate. What's your URL? Constellate Data. But that's not important. You know, you well, can just talk but to people, people. I think people are going to want to know more Google about me. you. Google me. Trisha Wong, W-A-N-G. And um, great talking with you, and thanks for joining me today, and thanks for letting me, uh, uh, thanks for indulging me, because usually I'm the one doing the questions, and, and the other folks are doing the talking, so thanks again. Thanks for letting me be an ethnographer with some alcohol. Well, That's where I'm, I'm at my best. You're good. <laughs> All right, take care.